Pleasure to have each and every one of you here. Take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of Colossians. Over the last couple weeks, in fact, last couple months, we've been learning uh, from God's word one simple theme that I hope that will resonate. Every time you hear the word Colossians, uh, you will connect with uh, this theme. The theme is Jesus Christ is preeminent. He's greater, he's more powerful, he's more majestic, he's more awesome than anything that this world has. And because of that, he deserves first place in, in all that we say, in all that we do, and including all of our worship, whether we are in church or, or in our uh, lives outside of church, that everything would find itself under uh, the submission and lordship of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves this week in Colossians chapter 2. And so turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible and the pew rack in front of you. And you can find our passage on page 984. Page 984. Uh, we're going to be looking at the same passage that we looked at uh, last week. Uh, as we addressed last week the problems uh, that... Uh, uh, the Colossian church had, where false teaching had come in, started propagating or, or, or pushing a, a heresy uh, that uh, allowed the people of Colossae to become bewildered and uh, to find themselves not putting Christ as, pre, as the preeminent one in their lives. And so we're going to be looking at uh, uh, kind of the solution. Uh, the, the problem last week we learned wasn't in ritualism, it wasn't in mysticism, it wasn't in legalism, it wasn't in those external things. But what we are going to learn is what we have set as our thesis statement for these two weeks is that we want to know where spiritual vitality is found. I want you to write in your bulletin, even before we get started this morning, that uh, uh, spiritual vitality uh, is not found in any of those other things. Uh, it's not found in empty religion. We learned that last week. Uh, you cannot be religious enough uh, in your own doing to make yourself have a vital relationship with God, that which is filled with all sorts of vibrancy and abundance. It can only be found, and what we're going to learn today is an extensive relationship with Christ and his church. And we're going to learn how we can have that relationship uh, because of what Christ has done uh, for us on the cross of Calvary. So I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading uh, of God's word. We're going to uh, start, and we're going to start all the way in verse 8. And I'm going to read 8 through 23, and then we will ask God's blessing on our time and then jump right into the Word. Here's what the Apostle Paul says to Colossians and to us today. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, do not let uh, anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. It is with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Of these referring to all the things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would speak a message a message through me, but Lord, I ask this morning that you would preach this message to me first and foremost. Lord, I, I need to hear what your word has to say, and I pray that as you preach to me, that others may be edified by it, that, that through the words that are spoken today, that, that the people that are in this place would be transformed. Lord, we have so many reasons to celebrate what you have done, and Lord, I pray that we might live in light of it, and as a result of it, find abundance and vitality as a result. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There are, there are Sundays where the worship team does you a great deal of, of help in getting you uh, prepared for what you're about to hear. And this Sunday is one of those days. Each one of our songs that we have sung has prepared your heart to hear what God's word has to say. We sang about God being able we sang about God um, and the death of Jesus Christ and, and the work of the cross being a glorious day where we have been redeemed and saved by the work of Jesus Christ. We sang the, the modern day hymn of In Christ Alone, meaning that there's nothing else in this world that can get us to a vibrant relationship with God except through Jesus Christ, His Son. And so you have already been prepared this morning to be ready to celebrate. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. We dealt last week with the problems of ritualism and legalism and, and all of the struggles that come along the way. But now Paul speaks to us once again through this passage and he wants to remind us that we have reason to celebrate not in ourselves, but because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We have reason to celebrate because we who are dead in our trespasses now have been made alive in Christ. We should understand and know what this celebration is all about. We love celebrations, don't we? We celebrate all different kinds of milestones and all different kinds of events. Birthdays, we love to celebrate those things. Anniversaries are other ways. We celebrate graduations and, and retirements. We celebrate the births of babies, and, and even at times, especially if they're a follower of Jesus Christ, we celebrate the life of even one who now is dead. We celebrate victories and milestones in, in sporting arenas and events. Uh, the, yesterday, uh, Noah played on his basketball team, and, and it was a, a back-and-forth game, and in the final seconds of the game, uh, Noah's team was able to steal the ball, and with the buzzer being sounded, the winning basket going into the into the hoop we celebrated the dads as if we did any of the work we celebrated like we were the team and we celebrate those things being victorious winning in a in a hard-fought battle 
We do it in the halls of academia where we have worked hard and, and we are rewarded, whether with a diploma or some sort of other high honor recognition. We do all of that because hard work has been done, sacrifice ha has taken place, and we want to let everybody know that we now celebrate in the victory of the diploma that we have before us. But to celebrate, what does that mean? I like to look at words that I use in everyday language and try to understand it. Literally, to celebrate means to proclaim, praise, or extol someone. When you celebrate someone, you're praising, proclaiming, or extolling. And, and, and we do that often with many things. We celebrate the achievements of many different people. But I want you to be reminded this morning that as followers of Jesus Christ, we have someone to celebrate, and that person is Jesus Christ. We celebrate him because of the sacrifice. We celebrate him because of his hard work. We celebrate him because in his sacrifice, we who were dead in our trespasses have now been made alive in Jesus Christ. We celebrate, and the reason why Paul tells us to celebrate is during the days of uh, the church at Colossae, people had begun to think that the Christian life had become somewhat routine, somewhat mundane. It had become altogether boring, and that may define for some of you today uh, your understanding of Christianity. And Paul says that one of the tendencies is that when you're bored and you're a part of something that's mundane is to go find something that will spice it up. And we learned last week from verses uh, 16 through 23 that there were all different kinds of options if you wanted to spice things up in your spiritual walk. If you really wanted to give a booster shot to your spirituality, then you needed to involve yourself in all sorts of ritualism and mysticism and, and legalism. That was the way you were going to find vitality and vibrance in your walk with God. But Paul stops and reminds us at the beginning of this passage that we don't need any of that stuff because we have Christ. And if we have Christ, we have no need for anything else. And having Christ is a reason enough for us to celebrate the greatness of what he has done. And so here in this passage, we're going to see Paul extol and proclaim and, and praise the name of Jesus. And I hope today, as you leave this place, that after hearing three reasons why you ought to celebrate, that it would change the way you look at your Christianity. It would change the way you fight sin. It would be the way that, that you look at yourself maybe a little differently today because you've been a part of a celebration of Jesus Christ in this place. Notice there are three things. Number one, that we want to see. One reason why we want to celebrate is because in Christ, we have now been given what I want to call a new completeness. A new completeness. Notice verse 10 uh, in our text this morning. And start in verse, uh, chapter, verse 9 of chapter 2. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Christ. We've been filled with him. And so I want you to notice today that as a child of God, you are fully complete in Christ. And what Paul is saying is that we have an overflowing measure, all that Christ has purposed us to have in him. When Jesus was on this earth ministering, he said that in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you may have life, and not just a mediocre life, not just kind of a, a normal life, not just a, a ordinary life, but an abundant life, that life that's overflowing with all of his goodness. And Paul reaffirms this profound truth. 
But what does abundant and full living in Christ look like? What it means when Paul says that we have been filled in Christ means that God has intended for his children to be flooded, to be flooded to the point of overflowing with all of Christ's love, power, and richness. That he wants us to experience all that we can in Christ, and therefore, listen, we don't have to turn anywhere else, that we are so full of all that Christ has given us that we no longer have to go around looking for other things to fill the gaps in our lives, whether it's sin or whether it's these external pick-me-ups or boosters, if you will, of religious activity as if to spice things up because they've become mundane. What God has done in Christ is he has set before us a table where he wants to meet all of our needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus. And he does that, literally, if you will, by setting us at a table and showering us with the most succulent of foods that we are to eat, if you will, spiritually. I live in a Middle Eastern home, and one of the ways that Middle Eastern custom comes out in our Middle Eastern home growing up was you loved people with food. Now that helps you understand why I have the physique that I do. All right? When a guest came, you wanted to show them that you celebrated their presence in your midst by giving them all sorts of food. Food always was coming in. As soon as one course was done, another course was coming in, and it was totally different than the other one. And it kept going until you were completely full. You would have to say, enough, enough. I, I, can't, I can't take anymore. It's too much. To which they would tell you, unbuckle your belt buckle a little bit. Get yourself another notch. You've still got room. What Christ is telling us is that God has opened the floodgates of heaven through the work of Jesus Christ. And he has set you at the table. And he is bringing in... A, a, his blessing over and over and over again. And it isn't the same blessing over and over again, but there's variety in that blessing of what uh, will meet your palate, if you will, and make you feel absolutely overflowing with blessing. This is what Christ has done. And we're going to learn how he has done it. But before we do, we need to do some review from last week. Because if you want that kind of life in Christ, I know some of you will say right away, that doesn't describe my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I find myself lacking. It seems like the world has a whole lot more to offer than Christ does. That when I I go to my computer, it offers more. When I go uh, and hang out with my friends, they offer more. When When I live for myself, it seems to offer more. Let me tell you something. It isn't that Christ isn't good enough. It is that you have allowed and I've allowed weeds in our lives to suffocate the good things that God wants to give us. And so last week we had to pull those weeds out. We had to pull those weeds that kept us uh, and was robbing us of what we needed. Notice in the text all the times that Paul is going to use these two phrases. In him and with him. And you need to recognize this morning that if you want spiritual vitality... It is in direct measurement with your connection with Jesus Christ. 
And so if you are sitting there far from God, you have no right to say, God, where's the blessing? God, where's the vitality? God, where's the abundant life? If you are living far from God and, and filling yourself with all kinds of religious activities or, or even sinful activities, you will never experience what God wants to give you. You'll never have reason to celebrate. So notice Paul addresses once again that this issue of completeness can't happen through certain events. Notice, number one, that it, it can't involve our traditions, but it involves a total change of the heart. Remember last week we talked about, in verses 16 through 23, that you could not be complete in Christ unless you had been involved in a certain ritual. That ritual being circumcision. Even though you were professing follower of Jesus Christ and following in his ways in all other aspects of life, the false teachers said in Colossae, you had not fully gotten all of Christ until you were circumcised. That is the removal of the foreskin, the physical removal of that. Now, this was forcing an Old Testament tradition that was placed in effect by God himself, but putting it into New Testament Christianity. Now why would Paul... See, such an important act is no longer necessary. In verse 11, we get the answer. He goes on and he says, In him you were, you, I'm sorry, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Jesus Christ. And let's stop there for a moment. What Paul says is the reason why you do not have to be a part of this physical act of circumcision is because you've already had that take place. Now what Paul is saying is no, these men had not had a priest remove a small piece of their flesh. For that was, as Paul said, a shadow of something greater that was to come. But in Christ, we now, all of us, have experienced a far greater circumcision in the text, it says, a circumcision of the heart not done with human hands. And so they, we weren't a part of, nor were they a part of, a, a, a surgery done by a human priest, but something spiritual by the great high priest, Jesus Christ. While the physical circumcision only affected one part of the body, Paul says we have been circumcised in such a way that it affects all of who we are. But before you think that the circumcision is just something spiritual, Paul says, notice, something was cut away. Look in the text. This circumcision that is done not by human hands, in the text, it says in verse 11, was the putting off of the body of flesh. There was a part of the flesh cut away, and that was fulfilled by the circumcision of Christ. And what Paul is speaking about is not, listen, he is not speaking about Jesus in the arms of his mom and dad on the eighth day after being born, taken to the Hebrew priest so that the circumcision could take place at his breasts. What is being talked about here is the event of Jesus Christ being cut down on the cross of Calvary. In that one event... We no longer need a removal of skin. We need to affirm the death of Jesus Christ. 
What's simply put there is in Colossians, in the day of Colossians, people were pointing, and I don't mean to be too crass with this, but people were pointing to their bodies saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. See, I've done the work. I've done this thing that you haven't done. And Paul says that you don't point to a particular part of your body that makes you holy. You point to the finished work of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's be frank about this so that it sinks in. As Christians, we can point, listen, to nothing of ourselves. We can't say, look at this, and you will see I'm a Christian. The only thing we can point to is the cross and the impact that that event has made, not only on one part of us, but our entire being. And so Paul says, stop focusing on, on this small piece of flesh as some litmus test as to, to you being a follower of Jesus Christ. What it really is, is a total change of the heart. And traditions say, if you do this ritual, if you do this thing, you deem yourself holy. Paul says that tradition may be good, but if you're using it to affirm your own salvation, then your salvation is in yourself or that ritual, not in the finished work of Christ. So we need to pivot for a moment to our times and our culture. What one thing are you pointing to for your salvation? If it has anything to do with you, then you have accepted yourself, not Jesus Christ. And so we need to recognize that that total change of heart is that Christ's work on the cross has so uniquely and extensively changed who I am that I no longer am the same person. I'm no longer the same individual. Christ has taken out my stone of, uh, uh, my heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh that beats for him alone. You see, when a Jew was circumcised, it meant nothing if it was not affirmed in faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. Likewise, if you think by doing something, it is meriting you some sort of holiness by some activity that you're a part of. Listen, you're only bragging about your own works and you're stealing all the glory from Christ. So Paul corrects us and he says, hey, this whole spiritual rebirth isn't about the traditions or rituals you hold to, but it's a change of the heart. Number two, it is not in the experiences you have, but in the cleansing of sin. In verse 12, at the beginning of it, notice in the text, it says, having been buried with him in baptism. Paul moves from the subject of circumcision to baptism. Okay, so some of you, of course, know about circumcision, but baptism we know a whole lot more of. Baptism, of course, is this act that we're a part of. Where, where there is symbolically cleansing and washing of one's sins. That uh, it's an external act of, of the inward change that takes place. But what Paul is speaking of more specifically is the act of, of which is done to allow that cleansing to take place. Paul is speaking of baptism being a picture of you and I dying to Christ and being buried with him. That's why we believe in the um, immersion style of baptism. Because it best pictures what is being symbolized. We are going down into the water as Christ went down into the grave. And we come out of the water in newness of life because we have been resurrected from the grave. It's a picture of us dying and being raised back to life. 
But in that moment of baptism, we see that our sins are not cleansed and washed away until we recognize the powerful symbol that is accomplished, and that is yours and my sin is buried with Christ. The idea here is that in baptism, you and I put to death that which was a part of the flesh, and we do it once and for all. A story is told of a little boy who had a cat. He loved his cat, and he spent all waking moments with this cat. They were inseparable until one day the cat died. And the father told the son, it's time to bury the cat. You can't keep the cat around. And to all the protests of the son, the son reluctantly buried the cat. But he was smart. He didn't want to lose the cat. And he knew if I buried the cat, the cat would never be able to spend time with me. And so he put the cat in a box, but he created a hole for the tail of the cat to stick out. And he positioned the tail of the cat to be outside of the grave that he would dig. And so every once in a while, he would miss the cat. And what he would do is he would pull the cat's tail and resurrect, if you will, the cat. Better, better exhume the cat. And he would do so. Now you could say that's morbid curiosity. Or you could say this guy really cared for his cat. The problem was, is each and every time that he did it, the cat was becoming more and more decomposed. One of the times that he did it, finally the tail came, but the cat didn't. And, and that's a pretty sick story, by the way. You guys laughed. The first service was totally, like, grossed out by that. Okay? Amen. Someone amens that. But here's what I want you to understand with that. When we die to our sin, we do what the little boy did. We bury our sin, but we leave a little bit of the tail so we can grab it when we need it. And we grab it because we want to be connected. And we recognize the calling God's given us to get rid of that sin. And, to, and as we're going to learn later in chapter 3, to put to death such things, we bury it. But hey, I just want to make sure if I want to bring it back, I, I can bring it out. I can do that. After the death of Abraham Lincoln, there was a lot of talk that the southern uh, sympathizers of the Confederacy, even after the war was done, sought to desecrate the grave and body of Abraham Lincoln. They were so filled with hatred after the war that there was all kinds of talk that men were going to go and steal the body and desecrate it in some horrific way. Those stories got so well known and so um, numerous that at the turn of the century there was question on whether Abraham Lincoln was actually in his grave. This is real history if, you don't, if you're unaware of it. I'm not making this up. It got so profound and such a, a groundswell took place that they exhumed the body of our 16th president. Because they were afraid if they exhumed the grave that there wouldn't be a body there that someone had stolen it. And around the turn of the century, a group of about, I think it was over a dozen, maybe as many as 20, one of them being Abraham Lincoln's sons, and a couple others who had walked and talked with Lincoln were there when the body was exhumed. There they found, in fact, Abraham Lincoln was in his grave. And if you go to the gravesite in Springfield, you will learn that they wanted to make sure nobody touched the grave ever again. So what did they do? They piled, listen, more concrete, tons of concrete than any other body has ever been entombed in before. What Paul is saying to us is that when we died with Christ, 
we put concrete over it for it to never, ever come up again. And what we need to recognize is, is that's not done through experiences. We need to die to our sin. Literally, the cleansing comes in the death of our sin with Christ. It is then and only then our sin can be washed away. That means interaction with angels, like we learned last week, detailed dreams and visions, things that will puff you up. They'll do no good until you die once and for all the death of your sinful nature so that it may one day be raised anew with Christ. You want cleansing? You want vitality? You must allow your life to be laid low. Not elevated, as Paul says, not puffed up, not in some self-made religion in verse 22, he says, but laid low in a grave with all of its sin and all of its guilt. You see, in baptism, we acknowledge a funeral has taken place. I don't know if you recognize that. We had a funeral, or funeral, we had a baptism a couple weeks ago, and it's a funeral, right? It's, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm not going to follow those ways anymore. That, that's dead to me. I'm not going to do that because that's been buried in Christ once and for all. Number three, we need to make sure that we don't think that spiritual vitality is found in our sacrifices, but we celebrate in the resurrecting of our corpses. Wow, Tim, this is a pretty morbid message. Hopefully it, it paints the picture. Notice we are told that, that in ver end of verse 12, we have been raised also with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. Last week we talked about empty religion being filled with the, us abstaining from all sorts of things in verses 21 and 22. That, that if by forbidding ourselves from doing certain things that God would deem us good and holy according to certain guidelines. But here's the problem with that thinking. If you think you can sacrifice certain things in this world, that that will make you holy and righteous, I want you to know what you're doing. You're just dressing up a corpse. You're putting deodorant on a rotting carcass of flesh. You see, when we die, we'll have a funeral, and they'll put us in our Sunday's best, and we'll never have looked better from a clothing standpoint. But at no point... Uh, in that funeral service, will we get up and say, because I'm wearing my favorite suit, my best suit, now I'm alive. And when we think that we can somehow clean up our lives through sacrifices, and that that will make us holy, we're missing the point. No amount of sacrifice, no amount of abstinence is going to make new birth possible. Paul says it's an act of God, a work of power done through Christ himself. You and I can't do enough to bring us into right standing. It leads us back to the question of, or the story of Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead. He's in the grave. He's been entombed. He's been wrapped up in burial clothes. And, and he can't say, hey, I'm going to sacrifice my way out of here. I'm going to commit myself to doing certain things. No, the only thing that would raise him from the dead is Jesus Christ, the life giver, saying, Lazarus, come forth. And the only thing that saves us from our sin is when God, through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, cries out your name and says, come forth alive. We need someone to raise us from the dead. And we need that someone who has done it himself. And, and Christ himself has been resurrected from the grave. He's the first 
fruit of the resurrection of the dead. And that's, that's what we celebrate. We who were dead in our trespasses and sin, which we'll talk about in a moment, have been made alive through Christ. And that is what God did on that Easter Sunday. That's why we celebrate that celebration of Easter. So with three examples, Paul has declared to you and I, we'll never be complete if we try to experience abundance. Notice through traditions, experiences, or sacrifices. We learned that last week. But what true living in Christ means is having a change of heart, having a cleansing of our sin where we've put it to death, and we have been raised in newness of life, in Christ. But how does he do that? How does he accomplish that? Paul goes on. He says, reason number two you need to celebrate. Reason number two is the conquest that Christ has had. We celebrate because of what Christ has done on the cross. The victory that he secured on the cross enables us to rest in him when it comes to all that we need as believers. Well, how is it that we can have abundance in life if we're dead in our trespasses and sin? Notice, Christ takes care of once and for all three things. Number one, the penalty of sin. Notice verse 13. In verse 13, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Paul speaks of this issue of trespasses. Literally, our sin, what Paul is saying, means we have crossed the line. We have stepped out of bounds. We have gone onto property that was not our own. The same sin you and I have committed is the same sin that Adam and Eve did. God said, don't go there, and they did. And God has told us, don't go there, and we did. We have trespassed on property that's not our own. We have transgressed God against God and his law. We have crossed the line and we have done so, listen, not as a result of just being lost, of losing our way. We did so as a transgressor or a trespasser out of all-out rebellion. And so I don't want you to think that the sinful individual is one who just simply lost their way and, and got on the wrong side without knowing it. We were told, as I have told my children from time to time, you will not touch that. And what do they do? That's not, oh, I fell into it. I'm sorry. That's, I'm a rebel. And I don't care what you say. I'm going to do it. We have rebelled against God. Every one of us have rebelled against God. And the Bible makes it clear, you rebel against God. You go against his perfect plan, and here's what you can expect, death. The soul that sins will die. The wage of sin is death. And so we have this problem. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, and, and he says the uncircumcision of our, our, our flesh. It's all over us. It's made evident. We don't have to, to wonder if one of us is sinful. We're all sinful. We can, we can watch the news and see we are a sinful group of people. But notice the text says he didn't leave us there. It says Jesus came and, and in the text it, it tells us that we were made alive together with Christ. How? How could we go from being dead in our trespasses and sins, in the uncircumcision of our heart, to being made alive together with God. How can that happen? The text tells us. 
having forgiven us all our trespasses. Jesus came and he forgave us of our sins. It would cost Christ his life, but he did so so that we who were dead may be made alive in Christ once again. How did he do it? Look at the word forgiven. If you underline, if you circle, it's a powerful word. It's the Greek word kadzorizomai. And kadzorizomai literally means to give, to grant as a favor, to give gratuitously, generously, graciously, to be given in kindness, to offer freely something, willingly and unconditionally bestow it upon another, to literally give to those who don't deserve it, to show grace by providing undeserved help to someone who is completely unworthy and doing it from a place of love. Jesus forgave our sins, listen, out of his heart of love. Jesus didn't go and say, God, do I really go, gotta have to, do I really have to uh, forgive Tim's sins? I mean, Tim's a loser. Look at all that he's done. Look, he's a rebel. Father, do I really have to? I mean, really? Tim? Give me 10 others, not Tim. I don't want to save him. He's blown it so many times. Man, it's hard to keep count up here in heaven all the times that he's blown it. I don't want to do that. He didn't say that of you either. He didn't say, do I have to? Now, I want to be careful. The Bible says in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that Christ wanted to pass to, the cup to pass him. But that's his humanity speaking. No human being wants to be put to death. And his humanity was crying out if there's any other way. But when, when Christ submits himself, as he always did, to the plan and will of God, he said what our cry should be, not my will, but your will be done. And the text tells us in the book of Hebrews that he went to the cross with the joy set before him. He had you and I on his mind, and his heart was filled. It was overflowing with joy. Not do I have to, but I get to die for Tim. Put your name in there. I get to die, Jesus said, for them, that they who are dead may be made alive in Christ. That should give you celebration. That should give you rejoicing. He looked forward with joy to forgiving us. Now, just a side note, remember that when you have to forgive someone else. Do I have to? I'm there really a loser. They really don't deserve it. They've done nothing, they've done nothing to move themselves closer to me. Why in the world would I extend forgiveness? Because the Bible says we are to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. And so if you're holding a grudge, you don't recognize the grace that has been extended to you. You'll never be able to forgive until you know how truly forgiven you are in Christ. Now notice, Paul doesn't stop there. Uh, let's look at the text, and this is important. Let's walk through this. Notice in the text that it says that having forgiven us, a few of our trespasses. Having forgiven us some of our trespasses. 
having forgiven us the smaller trespasses. I know this is going to take a Greek scholar, but that word there in the English is the word all. All. And all means all. You don't need to be a Greek scholar for that. That means every one of our sins, every last one, the small ones, the big ones, all of our trespasses have been forgiven every time you and I crossed the line against God. Christ in the work on the cross that it is forgiven, it is forgiven, it is forgiven. And if that doesn't give you reason to celebrate, then you don't know what it means to be forgiven. How did he do it? He gave a payment for the sin. Verse 14. Now there's the payment. He's declared victory by paying for our sin. Verse 14 says, By canceling the record debt, record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So let's look at your record. Growing up, I was not the best of kids. I got myself into trouble. Not a little bit of trouble, a lot of trouble. In fact, when I was cleaning up uh, my grandmother's stuff after she had passed away, we were cleaning up uh, a filing cabinet. And in one of the files, as we were pulling them through, gets pulled out a file that says Tim's legal issues. And it wasn't a small file, it was a pretty big file. And it was all the files because my grandmother had an attorney friend that would always come to my aid when I got myself into trouble and it was all of the different things that I did and all my community service hours and all of that. And, and, and when I pulled it out, there was a sense of guilt. My goodness, all the trouble that I've gotten myself into. It wasn't fun. Amanda got to see that. And it wasn't fun declaring to, some, to her some of the things that, that I had done in my youthful past. But I want you to recognize today your preacher isn't the only one who has a rap sheet. We all do. Each and every one of us, there's a file, and if we open it up, it's not a small file, it's a big file, and it's a file with every one of our indiscretions. Oh yes, the public ones, the ones that everybody sees, but also every one of the private ones. The ones that that have ripped you up for decades that you can't get beyond. That sin is there on your rap sheet. It's, it's just staring you in the face. The ones that you did yesterday that you haven't even really thought about, that you haven't even felt guilty about, that's all sitting on that rap sheet. One of the things as good parents, my, my parents sought to do is to make sure that, that every time that I got in trouble, when this record of law or record of debt was set against me, they would pay crazy amounts of money to make sure that my youthful indiscretions would not be there hanging over me as an adult. And so I learned the term to expunge a record. That that meant to make sure to wipe clean, to make sure that, that uh, if I ever went to get a job, none of these things would rise up in a, in a thing. And, and they worked hard at that, and I'm thankful for it because none of that stuff hangs over me as an adult. And what we have before us, sitting over us like a ton of bricks, is our written record that is held against us. We have got this record against us of all our trespasses. And listen, it's not something that only you see. Everybody sees it. When a man was crucified on a cross for his 
sins or his act, criminal activity, his, his offenses were nailed to the cross. So remember when Pilate says, what is his crime? And he says, king of the Jews, remember? Well, put that on his sign. That he's the king of the Jews. And they wanted blasphemer. They wanted all this other stuff. And Pilate, by the providence of God, he's the king of the Jews. And it was set before, why is this man dying? To the left and to the right, they're thieves, they're robbers. And for you and I, standing before us, for the whole world to see, as much as we want to hide it, it is there for us to see. Listen, the devil knows it. That's why he beats you up over it. That's why he brings that stuff up over and over again. That's why he accuses the brethren. Because he knows your record. It's public record. It's there. And, and he knows it. And others know it. And here's what God does. It says Jesus came. And he canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. So your sin, my sin, deserved death. And Christ canceled it. How? By standing against, that was standing against us with its legal demand. Someone needed to die and Christ died on our behalf. That was the legal demand. And so what does Christ do? By dying on the cross, he didn't have to die on that cross. He had a clean record, a clean slate. But what Christ does is he takes that record of debt and he wipes it clean. What I want you to understand is that Jesus doesn't give amnesty. He clears our record. He doesn't say, okay, if you're a sinner on this day, you can come into salvation. He says, I saved you from your sin. You no longer are a sinner. You're made clean. As a young kid, my peers would remember this. We grew up with what was called the Etch-A-Sketch. And the Etch-A-Sketch was that fun little toy where you could do drawings on the Etch-A-Sketch. And when you were done with that drawing, if you made a mistake or wanted to do something else, what would you do? Piers, help me out. You'd shake it. And you'd shake it and all of your drawings would be taken off. I want you to know in the greatest Etch-A-Sketch moment in all of human history, on the day that Christ died on the cross, he took all of our sins which were on a, a horrifically large Etch-A-Sketch. And Christ with one fell swoop shook them off never to be seen again. And he did so, so that we might live. He did so, so that we would no longer be put into bondage. Now I want you to notice just another thing with regards to this. It says the record of debt. Paul is alluding to what he knew as something that was very, uh, very prevalent in, in New Testament days. And that is the idea of indentured servants. That an individual would get themselves into so much debt that they themselves could never get themselves out of such debt. And so they would offer themselves to the bondage of someone else. I want you to recognize this morning that in our sinful state, when we went out of bounds to God, we had no way of redeeming ourselves back to God. And, and, and what we did was we paid our debt to the devil. We're in bondage to him. 
We're enslaved by him. And so we find ourselves enslaved, trying to pay our way back, trying to work our way out. And the devil loves it. Yeah, just keep working. If you just keep working, maybe you'll get close to God. Maybe that will be the right thing. And the devil knew what we did and that we could not work our way out of hell. And Jesus came and he went to hell and he scooped us out of that place and he paid the debt and he said, they are no longer in bondage to you. We need to recognize we can't do this on our own. It's simply by Jesus. Notice one other thing, this word, that, that word canceled, the canceling of our debt is found in aorist tense. That may not mean much to you, but what, what literally that means is it was done in the past and it's done. And so you don't have to be hounded by the devil anymore. I know some, I've, I've, I've just even in these past couple weeks have, have spent some time with some of you who are hounded by sins decades ago. And you're horrified by them. Has God forgotten those things? Has he forgiven those things? How can I live in freedom and vitality? It has been canceled out. That sin that you committed yesterday, the one that you promised you weren't going to ever sin again, that one that keeps getting you into trouble, Christ has canceled out. So you no longer have to be hounded. Are you having trouble accepting the forgiveness of God? Remember, Paul says it's been wiped totally off the slate. Notice one final victory that there's there in verse 15, the power of sin. It tells us that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them out to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul addresses the sin, and then he addresses the enemy. He, continues to, he addresses the enemy who continues to seek to destroy the people of God. And he says, I want you to know, people, that you and I have victory in Christ because not only has he taken care of our problem with sin, but he conquered the enemy. This truth is seen in two ways. First, he disarmed the enemy. I, I am a reader of wars, and one of the things that I love to read about wars is the surrender. Because the surrender tells you more about why the war was fought than the war does itself. And one of the things that you'll always see in every surrender, ev everyone, is that the surrender always means that the loser of the war has to lay down its arms. And so what will take place is that they will begin to bring all of the soldiers from the losing side and they will place their arms, their guns, and all of their um, aggressive weaponry and they'll place it at the feet of the victor. I want you to know on Easter Sunday... Jesus Christ watched as the devil and all his demons took every piece of warfare that they have and placed it at the feet of Jesus. And they set them down and they stacked them up. And Jesus said, with every gun and every weapon that's formed against us that will not prosper, every one of those weapons, they sat there and they were a testimony to Jesus being the victor. And so he was disarmed. You say, well, wait a minute, Tim. <clears throat> How could the devil be disarmed if he's wreaking such havoc in my life? Remember, the devil is a deceiver. So he's being loud and bombastic. He's, he's roaring like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Notice something. The reason why he roars is because he has no power against you. So he's got to scare you. 
He's got to scare you and me to think that he's a whole lot more powerful. But we need to remember what the book of James says. Resist him and he will flee from you. There's no power. Now, if you think that power is in and of us, you've got another thing coming. But if it's in Christ, then we can stand secure. So he disarmed the enemy. Second, he put him to open displays of shame. The victor, to proclaim to the, the victorious nation, would shackle the losers and parade them around through the towns to say the battle is done, the war, the war has been won, and we're the victor. And what we need to remember, what we need to be a part of is the celebration where the devil has been defeated, his demons have been disarmed, and now he's walking through, shamefully walking through as a loser because our God has conquered him. And when we recognize that, listen, when we recognize that, it will change the way we deal with our temptation. Because our temptation seems more powerful than we can handle. And, and what we need to recognize is that temptation doesn't have the teeth it used to. That temptation has now walked the shameful walk through our towns, being reminded that Jesus is more powerful than that. And we need to remember that when that temptation comes tomorrow, or even later today, that we no longer are in bondage to that because we have been made alive in Christ. So that leads us to one final thing, and it's a short point, but a very important one. We need to celebrate because of the certainty that we have. What's our certainty? There are two certainties that should change the way we live in light of what we've heard. Number one, all we need in life. All we need in life, we have in Christ. This passage once again reminds us why Christ is preeminent. And if Christ is preeminent, then why do we need that sin? Why do we need that website? Why do we need that gossip? Why do we need to have such a, a loser mentality? If Christ is preeminent, why do we have such broken relationships? If Christ is preeminent, why are we allowing the devil a foothold? If Christ is preeminent, why do we think that popularity in this world is something to be grasped? If Christ is preeminent in this life, why do we think we need to spend all our money on ourselves? If Christ is preeminent, why do we waste our time with such earthly things when we can be living for the glory of God? If we believe all that we've just talked about makes Christ preeminent, then why is it that it's not seen in our everyday life? Christ is preeminent. And that means everything that we need, we have in Christ. So therefore, let no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Go after that which is preeminent, not the shadow, not the counterfeits, but the real deal. Number two, all that we need from our Lord is available through Christ. Verse 9 and 10 reminds us of this truth. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Christ has all of God dwelling in bodily form. We have all of the fullness of Christ dwelling in us. 
what we need to recognize is, is that at our disposal, because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, is all that we need from our Heavenly Father. He withholds nothing from us. And so what you need to do, what I need to do, is we need to bow the knee, rejoice that we have a Savior, rejoice in the God we have, and plead and cry out, God, give me all that I need. You've made it available. I want all of it so I might live for you and proclaim you and worship you and serve you and honor you in all my ways because you have empowered me to be able to do that. And so this week, you can either celebrate the victory of Jesus, or you can wallow in your own defeat. Paul says that life that's worth living, that vitality and abundance is found in a relationship that sees and recognizes that Christ is the victor. And we have reason to celebrate. But that means we need to live differently because we know what Christ has done. Now we live from a place of victory, not defeat. And the question this week is, will you live in light of that victory or will you live in some quasi place of defeat because the, de the devil deceived you into thinking you're defeated when you're not? My prayer is you'll take these verses. And it will transform the way you look at your life and temptations and your service to God because he's the victor. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this word. And Lord, I pray that it would saturate our minds, it would saturate our hearts, and, and it would move to every action of our being. You have given us victory. We have done nothing. And all you ask now of us is to live in reality of that truth to see our sin for what it is and to rest in your love and your forgiveness and to live in light of that each and every day. Lord, I know it's not easy. I know that body of flesh wants to, wants to come back out from the grave. But you have done things so that they're done once and for all and we just need to live in light of that and when we do, we can experience the new life in Christ. So I pray that for every individual here, young and old, male and female, that we would not seek to fill our lives with stuff, but with our Savior. Lord, mold us into that kind of follower. Empower us to live that way. We can't do it on our own. And so, Lord, as we go out into this week and we're hit with all kinds of temptation and hit with all kinds of thoughts, that Colossians chapter 2, 11 through 23 would remind us that we don't have to because you have won the victory and we have reason to celebrate. Now, Lord, lead us from this place in celebration, fellowshipping with one another. Lord, I... I would be remiss not to pray for the one who maybe has never trusted Christ, never experienced that victory in Christ. Lord, today they wouldn't leave this place without learning more of what it means to be a follower of yours and how you uh, have changed us and, and made us victors in, in Christ. That they wouldn't leave here without experiencing that salvation. So lead us forth from this place now in fellowship and in love. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.